Well, this is Ed Stetzer Live, and this and uh, every Saturday at this time, we have conversations about what's going on in, in the world today, how we might uh, how we might kind of live faithfully in the midst of our very confusing cultural moment and more. So we're excited to have a conversation today that's going to be, well, it might have been something you actually saw on the History Channel. We'll, we, we, we shall see, uh, but we'll, uh, if you watch the program, we're going to talk about it, and we're excited about having this conversation today. Matter of fact, my guest is a friend and a colleague and a co-worker, Dominic Hernandez, and Dominic Hernandez is an associate professor of Old Testament and Semitics, which I'm going to have him explain in just a moment, don't worry, at the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. He's the author of several books, including Engaging the Old Testament, How to Read Biblical Narrative, Poetry, and Prophecy Well. Teaches on an array of topics, including biblical wisdom, ancient Near Eastern literature, and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that's, I mean, he's, he's awesome. People, he's a great professor. He, he leads Talbot in Espanol, which we'll explain just a little bit. But the reason I wanted to get him on uh, is because he was on the History Channel a lot the last few days. And so kind of, uh, kind of fun to watch. Uh, one of my colleagues on the History Channel, but also kind of funny to watch one of my colleagues on the History Channel in the midst of some really like strange and fascinating conversations. You know, the History Channel is, well, it, it's pretty fascinating. Let's just say that. The History Channel is pretty fascinating. But I love the fact that they recognize the great scholarship and the engaging communication that Dr. Dominic Hernandez brings to us uh, as as well. So we're going to have some conversation with him uh, in just a minute, but we're going to uh, first remind you that you can call in and 877-548-3675. And a lot, a lot of times people want to know what we're going to talk about. Well, we're going to talk a little about the History Channel where he was on a special about where the Garden of Eden was. Uh, and I, I learned some things that I didn't know. I'm not sure I wanted to know them. Not from Dominic. I like what Dominic had to say. But we'll talk about that in just a minute. For uh, and, and then he was on another special about the Shroud of Turin, which, of course, is the famous uh, alleged burial cloth of Jesus that so many people um, will we'll talk about. And, you know, it's made, made all kinds of news. So, all right, so we're going to jump right in. Dominic Hernandez, thank you so much for joining us on this conversation. You're there actually right broadcasting right from the campus of Biola University, right? I'm right here in my office at Biola University, surrounded by all of my books. <laughs> that is a comforting <laughs> place to be. I love that. I love it that. Now, but your, I, I will tell you, your field, like, uh, is... Like, for example, you, you both uh, engage in ancient Hebrew, you have biblical Hebrew, and also you speak modern Hebrew. You have uh, degrees from uh, Princeton. You went on to study. Uh, you studied in Israel. I mean, you're, you're, you're a well-equipped uh, scholar for all these things. And, and I would say to you that having watched the History Channel documentary, there were other well-equipped scholars there. You know, you never know with the History Channel. It could be about ancient aliens. It could be about whatever. Uh, so tell me, how in the world did you end up getting on the History Channel? Well, first of all, thank you for having me, me on again. I really appreciate it. How did I get on the History Channel? Well, it's interesting. I, I think that the, the person that does the casting just went to Biola University's website, saw what I, what I do, what I teach, and was interested in having me I guess, sort of audition for the show. There was a recorded kind of brief audition in which uh, this person recorded me answering some questions. And then, and then uh, she sent that to the, I guess, the director, producer, and they invited me to come on a couple of shows. 
Fascinating, fascinating. Okay, now, of course, I, the one about the Garden of Eden made sense just naturally because you're an Old Testament scholar. Oh, by the way, I, I promised that you would explain Semitics because most people don't use that word. Are, are you there? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Uh, so let's just okay. try this. We'll, <laughs> I'm sorry about that. We're going to go back no to the Tower of Babel. You know, at the beginning, everyone was sort of speaking one language. That's how the Bible it depicts this. Well, scholars say that there was a language called Proto-Semitic, which was one Semitic language that maybe all of the people in, let's say, the Near East or the ancient Near East would have spoken. We don't have any Proto-Semitic documents or anything, but that's like the language. And then there were there were languages that split off from that. There were Eastern languages like in Mesopotamia, east of Israel, and Western Semitic languages that split off from that. And in the Western Semitic languages, we have languages like Hebrew, for example, Ugaritic, which is another important one. And on and, and in Eastern Semitic languages, we have Akkadian, which is a well-known one. So what your professors do here at Talbot, your professors of Old Testament and Semitics, is we don't only really teach the Old Testament. We don't only, only teach biblical Hebrew, but we also teach the languages that are related to biblical Hebrew so that we can better understand the linguistic and literary context of the biblical texts by comparing it to other ancient languages. Fascinating, fascinating. So I, you know, when I went to seminary, I took, of course, Hebrew and, and Greek. And I guess probably like most people, like going into pastoral ministry at the time, I probably, it was easier for me to understand Greek and it was easier for me to engage Greek, partly because I took three years of Latin and there's, there's, you know, but Hebrew is just such a different construct. The whole language is such a different, um, a different experience as well. Did you find it challenging to, I mean, again, just for context, Old Testament Hebrew or the Hebrew scriptures, um, are, are distant in from modern Hebrew in many ways, but you've kind of mastered both. Is it, was it, was it a difficult thing to do? Well, Ed, you have me in my soapbox now, right? Because I say, "Come on, Christian, bring it. Christian." Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Christian, we we believe that the Bible is a, is the inspired word of God. Many of us would say that we believe in something like the verbal plenary inspiration, but frequently Christians will focus in on studying the New Testament and Greek because it's where our sort of interesting debates are, right? Calvinism, premillennialism, you know, all these other types of things. So, so frequently, uh, Christians will focus in on the New Testament and New Testament texts. Well, if we believe that the entirety of the scriptures are inspired, we really should dedicate a large portion of our formal biblical and theological education to the study of the Hebrew scriptures and even Aramaic. There's 269 verses in the Old Testament in Aramaic, another Semitic language. So I do I, I do get it. I, I'm sympathetic to Christians that say, oh, yeah, but Greek, it, it comes so much more naturally to me. But I also say we have to we have to. Put the batteries in, as we say in Spanish, ponese las pilas, and study uh, biblical Hebrew and Aramaic as well, which is about 75% of the inspired word of God. 75% fascinating and, and, and worth, uh, if you follow, if you don't follow Dominic on, uh, on Twitter, Instagram, he's quite, quite good. A lot of it's in Spanish, some of it's in English. And of course, talks some about Hebrew. Just I share some of the things that he posts and he recently talked to a student who is studying modern Hebrew with him as well. Anyway, I just think it's fascinating and we could spend the entirety of our time talking about just the Old Testament and Hebrew language and more. Yes, but we can. Let's go. Yes, yes, exactly. And you would love that. Uh, so, but the, talk to us a little bit. So, so the, there were two specials that you were on. Are there more coming or is it just, just like you're already on two, but is it two or you got others coming? 
I'd love it if there were others coming. In fact, I was invited to do a couple of things that were sort of out of my area. And so I, I, I politely declined those. But I am on uh, their sort of list of scholars that they do call Fun. for certain things. So if they do, if they call me up, I might have to tell the dean of Talbot School of Theology that I can't teach my classes that day because I'm going to go be on television again. I will fill in your Hebrew class. I will teach your Hebrew class that day. The great thing is we got lots yes. of other amazing Old Testament scholars as well. Okay, so so talk to me. So this the special that we're talking about that was uh, was the one where uh, where I first sort of, sort of watched and engaged was the uh, Garden of Eden one. And so the the host sort of comes on and talks about you know where was this? Uh, and it was interesting. They, in some ways, they made the assumption that there was some sort of a garden of Eden. It's not a, it's not a Christian program by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but they're engaging scriptural ideas. And, and, you know, so to start with just talking about, if you wouldn't mind kind of explaining the arc of the program, because I know it, it ended a little strange and then, well, the last segment was a little strange, but, but throughout it, it, there was some interesting questions that were there. So talk to us about the garden of Eden program. Yeah. The garden of Eden program, you're right, was more, sort of what I do I, I, as an Old Testament professor. And you are also right. The show sort of supposed that there actually was a Garden of Eden, and it, and it seemed to, the trajectory of the show was, well, if there was, and maybe there was, where would it have been? And so I'm, I'm featured much more in the first part of the show, which supposes that there was a garden that was called Eden, at least by the time the biblical writers wrote. And it seems like the biblical author of, of, of Genesis chapter 2 especially tried to indicate where that was relative to either uh, places that were that were known at the time of the writing of Genesis or places that would have been known during, we could say, a pr- prior to the, the generation of the writing of of the book of uh, Genesis. And so that's how the show started and then it got into other theories with regard to way the where the the garden may have been. One theory was Antarctica, another theory was northern Africa, another theory was Missouri. There were a couple of other theories as to where the the the, the garden could have been. But ultimately Ed, and I'm not sure if you saw this social media post, they actually had me come on and and I gave the last word. They, I was the last person yeah. that spoke on that show yeah. and basically said, "Well, you know, Maybe there's nothing in the Bible that ever suggests in any way whatsoever that the Garden of Eden may have been in Missouri. Oh, I thought that was kind of funny and fun. Yeah, that was that was, uh, and just so people know, the reason that Missouri is Mormonism. Mormonism has that connection that's there. But yeah, so keep keep telling us about the uh, the last uh, last lesson as well. I'm sorry, say that again, please. Say keep going. You were, you were explaining about the last segment when you kind of had the last word. What did you point them to? Well, first and foremost, I was just excited that they had me on at the end saying that, you know, there's really nothing in the Bible that suggests that the Garden of Eden could have been in North America, you know. Um, but we, we do read in, in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, that God, the Lord God, planted a garden in Eden in the east. So we're kind of like, okay, east of what? And it makes sense that we would say that that the author would 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 put this east of Israel or even east of Jerusalem more specifically. And we know that frequently the the east is understood to be maybe ancient Mesopotamia, which is a lot of modern day Iraq, right? So that's where I was featured most. Also, we read that there are four rivers in uh, the the garden is, is located relative to four rivers. Two of those rivers, we know where they currently are. So 
that maybe the Garden of Eden would have been ancient Mesopotamia. But here's the hermeneutical issue. Those of us that would believe that there was actually a Garden of Eden also probably believe that there was a big flood. And that is probably what we're going to talk about a little bit more. Isn't that right? It is indeed. It is indeed. So I want you to also, uh, I encourage folks to have a call. Maybe you got questions. Maybe you want to talk about the Garden of Eden question as well. 877-548-3675 is our number. Again, with Dominic Hernandez from Tablet School of Theology, 877-548-3675. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. We're back at Stetzer Live. We're here with Dominic Hernandez. Actually, I work with Dominic. I didn't introduce myself at the beginning of the show. I'm the dean of the Talbot School of Theology, so I had the privilege of serving Dominic and the other faculty there, and uh, and really just, I mean, some world-class folks, and we're so thankful for, for these kinds of conversations. We're also thankful that Dominic would end up on the History Channel talking about the Garden of Eden and more. And we're going to take your calls in just a minute. Let me tell you again, we're going to talk some about the uh, the garden narrative and more. Uh, and then we're probably going to move to the Shroud of Turin, not because those are naturally connected topics, but because those were two things that were covered on the History Channel specials that he, were, he was on. And if you're interested, you can go to edstetzerlive.com. And there is just the link to the shows right there. Uh, some people actually listen from that link because maybe they're, you know, we're on 250 outlets across the country, but but not everybody has a terrestrial radio station near them, so they're listening online. But you'd also find links to Dominic's relatively new book last year, Engaging the Old Testament, How to Read Biblical Narrative, Poetry, and Prophecy Well. And you can find links to the History Channel episodes as well. Okay, so we, I mean, there are some, you know, physical markers that are sort of ex- explained in in Genesis about, you know, so right, you mentioned those rivers and the Tigris and Euphrates. and But then it's like, what are these other two rivers? And, and then you're going to explain a little bit how this ties to the flood. And then we kind of ran out of time. Let me have you pick back up. Let me remind people again, 877-548-3675. So take us back to what are, I mean, they're pretty familiar stories, but maybe the details get lost as we sort of remember the broad outlines of the stories. Isn't that right? So as we slow down and we read some of the details of the Genesis chapter 2 account of the creation narrative, we read that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So Eden seems to be a, 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 a broader place than just the garden. And then it became four rivers. And out of those four rivers, we know the name of two, the Tigris and the Euphrates, but we don't know the name of the other two rivers, the Pishon and the Gihon. So we're kind of like, where where were, where were these rivers? Now, if we just pause for a second and remember that uh, for those of us that would say, hey, there was a, a literal garden someplace. Uh, this is referring to some sort of literal area. Then we probably would also think that there was a big flood, which also seems to be some, corroborated in other ancient Near Eastern documents like Atrahasis and the Epic of Gilgamesh that talk about this big flood. So in reality, maybe we don't know. We can't identify where the Garden of Eden was, or maybe these rivers changed their course after the flood. I mean, we may just not even know. But it does seem like the author of Genesis put these markers in there to tell at least the readership that there was an actual location that we could call Eden. 
Yeah, it's interesting when we find uh, historic or geographic markers. Um, it's not just it doesn't just be something. Well, you know, there's this idea, this story, this myth, but there are reasons that the biblical authors and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit include some of those things as well. And I want you to keep moving forward through in a bit, but let's take a couple phone calls that sort of help us a little bit to think through some of these things. Uh, Clinton in Dundee, Florida. Clinton, you're live on the air with your question or comment. Go right ahead. Yes, just wondering aloud. My eyes are compromised, so I can't see the text to double check. But is it really the Garden in Eden or the Garden of Eden? Eden being a larger geographical area, and the Garden is a specific uh, you know, location within that larger geographical sphere. Yeah, super question. And I want, uh, if you don't mind, Dominic, too, I want you to explain to us uh, why that matters. I mean, explain, you know, kind of answer the question, you know, but then also unpack it a little bit and help us understand a bit of why that ultimately matters. Thank you very much for this question. So it, it, the, the, the reason why we're, this question is important if there is a location of the Garden of Eden is that it seems that there's a garden in Eden, right? So, and by the way, a garden in Eden can also be a garden of Eden if Eden is a broader uh, area. They're not really that much different. But I'm over here looking at the Hebrew text right now in chapter 2, verse 10, and it says, which means a river flowed from Eden to water the garden. So it looks like there's a, a place called Eden and that this river flowed from Eden to water this garden that we call the Garden of Eden. Fascinating, fascinating. And by the way, you're the, we posted, we both posted on uh, Twitter this morning about the program and um, you are holding in that picture uh, what I'm assuming you're reading from right now, which is just a, a Hebrew, no, no English in there, just a, a Hebrew Bible. Is that correct? You just read that direct from the Hebrew Bible? Yes, it's the Hebrew Bible that I've been using in all of my classes since I was a, an MDiv student. And now I even use it here at our classes at Talbot School of Theology in English and in Spanish. That's my Bible. Love. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because we have Talbot and Espolo. You want to talk about that in just a minute, too. Uh, Mary's got a question about Hebrew itself. Mary from South Florida, you are live on the air. Go right ahead. How Mary, are you there? Hebrew. Oh, good. Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes, go right ahead, please. Hello? Okay. So how does Hebrew distinguish itself? Uh, this is what I've heard, that it distinguishes itself from all other languages, is that it's written in a different tense. It's like we're not going to do something. It's already done. Uh, that, that's like the only yeah. way I can describe it. It's, no, no, that's fine. That's fine. Let's it, let's have him talk some about yeah. the uniqueness of the Hebrew language. I'm not sure. I mean, Dominic, I don't know that we, I mean, there are obviously similarities with other languages. So unpack that a little bit from Mary's question. Yeah. So Mary, I'm not exactly sure what you heard, but I can talk to, about the tenses in Hebrew. In Hebrew, there's a, a perfect tense. There, there are basically two tenses that are used very frequently in the Old Testament. There's a perfect tense, which is normally in and of itself something like a past tense or something that's already happened is completed. And then there is an imperfect tense, which is normally which normally talks about something that is a continuing action or maybe even a future action. There is frequent, there is also um, a, another sort of tense that came into modern Hebrew as a present tense. But in reality, those are the main tenses that we would have in Hebrew. So Hebrew would express sort of biblical Hebrew would express conditional things, not necessarily with a conditional 
tense or conjugation per se, but would use a different word structure in order to indicate things like conditionality. Okay. The, um, one of the things I think may be underlying, Mary, I'm not 100% sure, but let me just kind of flow from that and say, so sometimes I hear Christians say that Hebrew, that Hebrew is, is almost something like a uh, you know, language that is, is so unique that that in and of itself speaks to uh, the wonder and glory of, of, you know, of God's work and his creation of this language, that it's sort of like a special, I heard somebody say that I wouldn't find this language helpful, but it's like a magical version of a language. Uh, and, and that's actually, I mean, Hebrew is, is a language that's evolved from other languages as well. So we don't want to, uh, but, but, but in some ways it's, it's miraculous that it's now, it's now being used in, in Israel. So there are some pretty remarkable things, but we don't want to, well, you help me understand. I don't want to overstate the remarkable nature of it. Well, first of all, I, I love the fact that people love the Hebrew language and want to get yes, into studying do. it. And right, so this is uh, absolutely a love for Hebrew is where it starts. And you can continue to take our courses at Tabbath School of Theology in Hebrew. Isn't that right, Dr. Stetzer? Yes, indeed. <laughs> but here's what I'll say about, about Hebrew being a unique language it, it is unique, inherently unique, in, in the sense that. Uh, there is a portion of what we consider to be God's inspired word written in this ancient Hebrew language. So in that sense, yes, it's unique. Now, in terms of it being some sort of special or heavenly language, when you study other Semitics next to the biblical Hebrew language, you see that it really does fit into its ancient Near Eastern linguistic settings. So it's sort of like saying, well, Spanish is a wonderful language, as I'm a Spanish speaker, because it was the most excellent book, Don Quixote de la Mancha, was written in Spanish. Well, yes, that, it is unique, and Don Quixote is a great, great classic book. But at the same time, Spanish fits very naturally into these other Latin languages. It's very close to Italian, Portuguese, French, and Romanian, right? So I think that we, we should recognize that it is a special language because it, some of God's words written in it. But at the same time, we can study it alongside other languages and say, okay, we now see how it fits into its ancient Near Eastern setting as well. Yeah, so so good. Okay, let me remind people too, we're talking, uh, well, we're talking about Hebrew now, but we were talking primarily about the Garden of Eden a minute ago. I want to come back, back to that in just a second. Our phone number, 877-548-3675. I'm going to give it to you one more time if you want to call, 877-548-3675. Okay, so part of what we talk about when we talk about the Garden of Eden is is actually in the special as well. You've watched the special, I've watched the special. Talk to us about archaeology. I mean, there's a lot of... I mean, there's actually some pretty good archaeology in that special. I was, I was, um, I wouldn't like, you know, when talking about the, tur the Turkey location, things of that sort, um, I wouldn't, it didn't lead me to the conclusion that the Garden of Eden was there, but I was surprised at some of the level of archaeological discussion. So talk to us about archaeology related to the garden. You know, I'm, uh, actually, do you remember exactly what, what was said about the, like, I don't, you know, I remember like talking about the, the, the Turkey site when they were talking about the Turkey site, but, uh, but you know, they, they went back and talked about when it was discovered and things of that sort. But I guess, you know, not so much the special in general, but I mean, does, does archaeology help us at all think about the, the Garden of Eden or is that so far back that we don't have our archaeological connections to that? Well, I, I do remember now, as we're talking about uh, the Turkey site, that the area that was supposedly Turkey is also east of Israel, and that sort of fits in right. with the biblical language that they're. It's very clearly north, maybe even more north than east. But in terms of archaeology, my personal opinion, 
uh, I'm not sure that archaeology can help us that much as it relates to this. First of all, uh, even if we take all of the Bible's numbers and all of the Bible's chronolo- uh, um, genealogies to be exactly what, you know, if, if, we, if we sort of add up the years, we're talking about lots and lots of years ago, right? So it's it's right. very difficult to, to say that there would have been any archaeo- there could be any archaeological find that would uh, maybe be related to, to Eden. And in addition to that, to be completely frank with you, uh, it seems that ancient Mesopotamia, particularly between the Tigris and the Euphrates, are, is simply a better option if we're talking yeah. about east of Jerusalem. That is, and and that's my that's obviously my my take. If uh, if you if you have to press me on this issue, yeah, and I think I think I mean that's kind of the I mean not everybody thinks that, but most evangelical scholars, you know, I mean it's 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 when you mention two rivers that are in that area, it's sort of hard to uh, to not come to some of that conclusion as well. And and of course, you know, river shifting is a, is a very real thing as well. Um okay, so we're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. And again, remember we're taking your calls and and we're going to I'm going to start we'll probably still have some calls in and around these some of these Old Testament questions, but I'm going to then move to a conversation about the other special you're on, which was the Shroud of Turin special, which is a whole nother fascinating conversation. It's not a, it's not a biblical text question. It's a, it's an historic artifact question as well. Remember, we're going to take your calls, 877-548-3675. Again, it's 877-548-3675. We're talking to Dominic, Dr. Dominic Hernandez, who's a professor and teaches in Old Testament and Semitics at the Talbot School of Theology. And again, we want to take your calls. Hey, we're back. Dr. Dominic Hernandez is our guest. I've introduced him a couple times, and rightly so. He's the Associate Professor of Old Testament and Semitics at the Talbot School of Theology. But he also leads Talbot in Espanol, which is our Spanish language program. We're going to probably talk a little bit about that in our final segment. But we've got some calls coming in, so we want to we want to kind of work through some of these calls. And uh, we'll go through. We've got kind of all over the country, different calls, so we'll jump right in. Uh, Debbie, we're going to go first to you in Page, Arizona. You're live on the air. Go ahead. Hi. Um, good morning. My question is, um, you kind of poopod Missouri as the location of the Garden of Eden, and I was wondering if there's anything in the Bible for or against Missouri, and why do some believe so adamantly that that is where it is? Super question, and, and Debbie, hold on the line, too, because I think it'll be a, a helpful answer. Just for the record, we love Missouri. Dominic? Tell us about the Garden of Eden related to Missouri, why people even think that, and what your thoughts are on it. Yeah, this is a good question. So a couple of things to start off with. This is an issue of reading for me as someone who reads the Bible as the inspired word of God, someone that says that, someone that thinks that what the Bible says is true. Now we have to be good readers of it. But when I come to the biblical text, I, I try to do my best to read and and receive what the text is communicating concerning even things like the Garden of Eden, which, hey, we, we don't know exactly where it may have been, but we want to do our best to give our be- be good readers and give a best educated guess. So that's where I start. And as I come to the biblical text, I think to myself, okay, where could this be? And, and, and as I said on the History Channel, I, I just don't think 
that there's any evidence at all that the garden could be in North America. It, it, it doesn't, the biblical text does not suggest that. It doesn't allude to that. It's just not there. Now, the reason why some might think it's in, it was in Missouri is because of the Mormon faith. Mormons actually believe that uh, the God, well, through an angel revealed himself to Joseph Smith. And then eventually that was in New York, but eventually the movement made its way to Missouri. And so Mormons believe that the Garden of Eden was in Missouri. Yeah, and I think they did uh, They did indicate that on the show. It's Jackson County, Missouri was where that would be. So that's where that comes from. I don't know that it's necessarily a biblical idea. I and mean, Mormonism is a you know distinct separate religion from Christianity and adherents hold different views, including uh, that one as well. Okay, good. So let's keep going. Let's go to Elizabeth in Carmel, Indiana. You're live on the air, Elizabeth. Go right ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, does the knowledge of other Semitic languages help with the understanding of Hebrew words and with translation? Elizabeth, I, I want to say to you, you're not helping today, because by asking questions like this, you're going to give Dominic Hernandez the opportunity to to tell you all about Semitic languages, That's and you're right. fulfilling the—this is the greatest moment. Like, this is the moment of his, of his, of his joy today. So, no, Elizabeth, great question, Elizabeth. What, what do you think, Dominic? Yes, I think it absolutely does. So I wrote my uh, dissertation and first monograph on the book of Job. And one rabbi, a very famous one, named Saadia Hagaon, he said that there are at least 70 hapax legam, so 70 words that are used only one time in the whole Bible, just in the book of Job. Now, what does that mean to us? It means that we don't really have lots to compare those words and, and phrases to in the Bible. So what do we do then? Well, we start looking at similar words and phrases in other ancient Semitic languages to see if we might be able to glean uh, from those languages and how they're used in their context. We might be able to glean meaning with the, with the biblical words and the biblical phrases might mean in their context. Now, it's very important to note, we, we don't think that those the, the extra biblical documents are necessarily authoritative like the Bible, but we want to do our best to figure out what the Bible is saying. And so we, we go to these other languages that are very closely tied similar to or and similar to uh, Hebrew to try to figure out maybe what some of these difficult words and phrases might mean. So the answer to this is absolutely positively yes. Yeah, so in a Bible word in, you know, Aramaic, uh, Greek, or Hebrew is used um, once, that's the term that you were talking referred to just a minute ago, uh, right. we can actually see that it's often used, for example, I'm a little more familiar with Koine Greek, that that word is used other places. It's like, okay, so if it's used other places, then we can learn more about the usage, even though it's used once in the Bible. And so, uh, and and in Semitic languages are, you know, there's a, there's a family of languages as well. Do any of those, just looking at some other questions people had, do any of those uh, still exist today in the way that Hebrew does? Uh, are there descendant languages from that? How does how does that play out? Well, absolutely. Um, Ar- Arabic is the is the one that is you know, obviously the strongest. Arabic is also yeah. a Semitic language. Arabic even um, preserves some of the original pronunciation of some of the Hebrew characters. So some Hebrew characters 
basically are pronounced very similarly in modern Hebrew. Arabic has preserved the distinction. So Arabic is the real strong one. That's a very close sister language to Hebrew. But there also are sort of these new or neo-Aramaic dialects. There are some people that speak that those languages. And we could really say that um, because of the way that languages touch one another, there's language contact now, that we have remnants of different Semitic languages in contemporary Semitic languages as well. Like, for example, modern Hebrew, which is basically a creation from biblical Hebrew and, and Aramaic, some Aramaic. Modern Hebrew has, has lots of biblical Hebrew with some syntax, like how the words are combined. That sounds a little bit different than biblical Hebrew, plus some Arabic. So words like yalla and wala and, uh, and some Aramaic, right? So it's a combination uh, of these languages that really do. It's, it's quite fascinating, to be honest with you, to go back and look at where some of the modern Hebrew words and phrases came from. They're really tied to other, other Semitic languages. Yeah, and I love when I'm teaching and preaching, you know, going through, learning some of those things, connecting. And while we're talking about languages, you mentioned Aramaic, so let's talk about what Jesus spoke and uh, and, and what the disciples may have engaged in with their language. Oh, geez, you really are making my day. Thank you very much, Ed. I know, I know, I'm question. here to serve you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so lots of people say Hebrew, uh, Jesus spoke Aramaic. Lots of our Bibles say Jesus spoke Aramaic. And when I was in seminary, I thought to myself, why in the world would Jesus speak Aramaic during that time? It didn't seem to make so much sense to me, particularly because the Mishnah, which is the first part of the, the Talmud, that's written in a, in a sort of dialect of Hebrew called Mishnaic Hebrew, and it was written even after Jesus was on the earth. So I just started thinking, and I, I had a, a, a friend of mine that also was, it was, a, it was my, my first Hebrew teacher. He, he's, he wrote a book about Jesus speaking Hebrew. Uh, as a first language. And so I, I did, eventually did a paper uh, focusing on Jesus speaking a form of Hebrew to other Jewish people during the time. Now, I'll just briefly say, I'll give one example as to why I think Jesus probably spoke a form of Hebrew, Mishnaic Hebrew, and that's this. When Jesus is on the cross, he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Now, almost everybody that's listening is probably familiar with that. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And then Mark and Matthew, where this is recorded, they translate what Jesus is saying into Greek. So they left it in the original language, but they they put they transliterated it. They put it in Greek letters, but it's actually a Semitic language. So the question is, what language is that? It's a reference to Psalm 22, which is very similar. Eli, Eli, lama azavtani. The only thing that, cha that changes there is the verb Azavtani in the Old Testament to the word Sabachtani in the New Testament. So why does that change? And it turns out that the word that Jesus was using on the cross is actually a, we can say, contemporized synonym of Azav. So really what Jesus is doing is he's making reference to Psalm 22 by saying Eli Eli lama Sabachtani, but he's doing it in a way that all of the people that would have been Hebrew speakers during his time would have understood, and they would have understood that he was making reference to Psalm 22. 
Fascinating, fascinating. Okay, we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Dominic Hernandez in just a moment. Uh, we're going to get to, we'll, we'll try to do a couple more calls. I'm going to go to Grays Lake, Illinois when we get back, and Boca Raton when we get back. And then we're probably going to switch topics. So so if you're if you're holding for other topics, we're probably going to switch topics to the Shroud of Turin just to let you know. Uh, but again, our phone number two, particularly if you're going to lean in on the Shroud of Turin question, is uh, 877-877. Five four eight three six seven five. We're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Dominic Hernandez at the Catholic School of Theology in just a moment. Hey, we're back. It's Desert Live here on Moody Radio Network, partners and affiliates. And we're going to go to the phones in just a moment. I think I already kind of signaled we're going to go to Hal next and Marvin after that. But it does remind me, because Hal's actually calling from, and we're not going to you quite yet, Hal, but just a minute, Hal's calling from Boca Raton. And one of the few things I know in my limited knowledge of Spanish is that's a funny name for a city if you speak the Spanish language. So uh, talk to us a little bit about, well, first of all, you got to tell them what that means. But also talk to us a little bit about what you're doing in Talbot and Espanol, which I think is a unique and important part of what's going on right now at Biola. Well, I think it's a most excellent part of what's going on here at Biola, Talbot School of Theology of Biola University. Um, thanks to just so many people that have contributed over the past couple of years to this project, we have been able to open up a program called Talbot en Español, which is basically the same trajectory of Talbot in, Ingl in English, but in Español. So now we are offering a certificate program, but not just that. And Stetzer, you know, we just got three master's degrees approved completely in Espanol, completely online at a very reasonable price. The master's degrees are the Master of Arts in Bible Exposition, the Master of Arts in Leadership, and the Master of Divinity in General and Pastoral Studies. We offer all classes to all people, men, women, different ages. It's a great, different dialects of Spanish. It is a great opportunity for those that are in ministry or desiring to go into Spanish-speaking ministry to be trained completely online and completely un-Spanish at a very reasonable rate. I love it. I love it. And I love that you're doing this. And I love that you just casually go from Hebrew to Spanish to English to, well, I could like could list more. So we're super thankful for that as well. You didn't tell us what Boca Raton means in Spanish. What does it mean in Spanish? Boca means mouth and raton means rat. So I guess the it does. mouth it's the, of the it's rat, the, which is... It's the mouth of the rat. So let's go to the mouth of the rat. Hal, you're live on the air with your question or your comment. Go ahead. Thank you. Speaking from the mouth of the rat, <laughs> uh, I am. Uh, uh, when we encounter hermeneutic challenges, uh, by considering the possibility that uh, we might depart from orthodoxy, some, I feel that uh, after reading the Bible for many years, it will contain hints as to which way to go, which way we should go. Uh, so one of the questions I face is, could Genesis 1 to 4 be fable rather than narrative? Mm -hmm. And I come down to the detail of talking animals. And there's another talking animal in the Bible, of course, Balaam's ass. Are you with me so far? So far, so far. But get right to your question because you only got a few minutes left. So go, finish, go ahead and finish it up. The Bible says specifically that God opened the mouth of the donkey. It never says the same thing about the talking snake in uh, Genesis. Right. So my question would be, 
uh, is it legitimate to think of the talking snake when an animal is presented as talking, when we know animals don't do that, that maybe the talking snake in, in uh, Genesis has something of a fable about it? Great, All great right. question, Hal. Thank you. Uh, if you hold on the line, let's let's have Dominic jump in because this is a question that you know I, I you know I, I've read John Walton. I used to teach at Wheaton, and and John Walton talks about this. I've actually not been in your class, so how do you kind of walk through the question of you know what is uh, what is myth, what is a story to illustrate a point, uh, what is you know temple text? We get to, we can't get super too technical, but but where 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 are we on this, Dominic? Explain it to us. Yeah, I, th- I think. When these types of questions pop up in classes, it's always important to define terms. Like, what are we talking about when we say myth and when we say fable? So right. you use right. the word myth initially. And if and if we're talking about Genesis 1 through 4, or even uh, Genesis 1 through 11, those are, those are always sort of combined together prior to us getting to the Abrahamic narrative at the end of 11. If we're talking about those being completely fictitious tales, like in the archaic sense of the word fable, then I would say I don't believe them to be fable. Uh, It seems that we are given specific details within those chapters that indicate that that there were real people like the genealogies, that there were real locations like Eden. Now, that doesn't mean that it's completely history the way that we might understand history, because we have to let the biblical writers talk to us and tell us how let us see how they were writing in their time about the things that were important, not only to them, but theologically important for the readership. So uh, fable in the sense of being completely fictitious, no. But history in the way that we might expect history to be told, probably not, because the biblical authors were always trying to take us, they were being selective in their storytelling to take us to their theological goals. Yeah, and I always think of... um you know, the Genesis narrative where uh, specifically talks about, you know, God created the sun, God created the moon, because people in that day would have worshipped the sun and the moon. And so clearly uh, part of that is to say what the things that you worship. So they're, they're, the, the telling of that is also has a theological implications to the people in and around that day. Okay, we're going to try to get in. Uh, we're going to try to get in one more call. But Marvin, I'm going to go to you in Grace Lake, but I, I need you to be right to it. So Marvin, you are live on the air. Go right ahead. Thank you. Uh, My question uh, involves uh, Genesis 3, 21 through 24, and that's the expulsion of the garden uh, of the man. And uh, to keep it from getting back in and and getting the tree of life. Uh, So that suggests at least it might have been possible for him to do that. Would uh, Dr. Hernandez comment on that, please? Love it. I love the question. Do we have the greatest callers, Dominic? Tell us what you think. Most excellent. Behold, the man has become like one of us. We read this now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then there's a blank there. Literally, there's a blank there. What What is the blank? And the blank consists to this very day. We don't exactly know why God is is trying to prohibit him from potentially living forever or something. There's literally like a, like an ellipsis in the biblical Hebrew. So the short answer to this question is we don't really know the answer to, to why, if, if, even if Adam and Eve could have gone back to the garden, what the real consequences would have been. We that's, there's an ellipsis there in the, in the biblical Hebrew. 
fascinating. Hal and, and Marvin, super questions. Matter of fact, great questions throughout the show today. But but Dr. Hernandez, we got we got to answer one question that's kind of even out of your field, but you're in the History Channel special, which people can go to edstetzerlive.com and watch the two history. The links are right there. So Shroud of Turin, I mean, tell us what it is and tell us, well, first tell us what people think it is and then tell us what you think it is. All right. So many people don't know what the word shroud means. We hardly use that term in our day and age because we Many of us that don't work in burying people don't wrap bodies, don't don't uh, anoint bodies, right? So a shroud is simply a, a linen cloth that was used to wrap a body. And we read in the Gospels, we read in Mark, we read in Matthew, we read in, in Luke, in the synoptics, that there was a shroud uh, placed over Jesus's body. And so uh, th- there is a shroud that exists now in Turin, Italy, that's called the Shroud of Turin. It's a it's basically a linen cloth about 14 feet long, like maybe a little bit more than three feet wide. And some people believe that it has the image of Jesus on it. It was it was the actual shroud that wrapped Jesus's body that we read about in the Synoptic Gospels. Okay. And what do we got about a minute left? I need you to tell us, is it or is it not definitively? Okay. So if you look at this shroud, it does, you can see the image of a person and it does really look that way. It it looks like there's a person I would have. And some people would say, Hey, there may have been some like maybe linen found on it. There may have been like a coin from the, from the first century found uh, in the image or something like that. But others say, wait a second, we don't know about its existence until like the 14th century. And it seems that the carbon testing that we've done really doesn't put it much earlier than that. And so could it conceivably maybe have been the shroud that was used to wrap Jesus' body? Maybe. But the better question is, what is the likelihood that it is? And in my opinion, the likelihood is very, very slim. See, now I was hoping you were going to say that because I thought the same thing. But there are some people who, you know, the shroud's actually been put on display a few times. Uh, uh, my, my thought is it's some beautiful art that was made, uh, you know, in, in around the 1400s. I don't know the exact time. And, um, and it was intended to, to portray this crucifixion, this linen of the crucifixion. But, but again, super. Uh, Dominic Hernandez, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the program with us today. Let me remind you again about his book, Engaging the Old Testament, How to Read Biblical Narrative, Poetry, and Prophecy Well. And I would not serve him well if I didn't say to him that he would love to teach you Hebrew, modern, ancient, and he'd love to do it in Spanish. And you can find all the information about Talbot and Espanol and about all that all listed there at edstetzerlive.com. We, we put it in one place so it's easy for people to find. Hey, thanks so much to my team here. He's done a great job keeping us all moving through the conversation. My producer, Karen Hendren, my engineer, Bob Moreau, and Laura manning the phones today. To hear today's program again, you can go to edstetzerlive.com or the Moody Radio app. And Let me remind you, you can connect with social media at Ed Stetzer Live. And Ed Stetzer Live is a production of Moody Radio, which is a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Thanks for listening today and every Saturday. God bless.